You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thank you for joining us this week as we continue our teaching series on the book of Revelation. I have such good news for you today. This is the last time we're going to talk about Revelation. Maybe ever. (laughs) I'm just going to submit that for consideration. Welcome to Real Life. We're glad you're here this morning. You have been a part of a special elite crew that have endured a series through Revelation. And we are landing the plane today. We're going to cover Revelation chapters 21 and 22, but mostly 21 today, and maybe some other stuff. So uh, here's what I want us to do. Alistair Begg, who's a famous radio preacher, he says, he made a great statement once. (laughs) That was funny once. Um, he's actually made lots of great statements. I love that guy. And he's, his voice is like butter. It's like, oh, wow, just talk. You don't have to say anything. Just talk. Here's what he said. Um, the problem for those of us that know the biblical story well is that we can suffer from knowing it. And um, the Rabbi David Foreman, he calls this the lullaby effect, that we read a passage enough times and we stop asking questions of the passage and we just assume that we know everything that there is to know about it, right? And so that's something that um, has been kind of a struggle to figure out, like, how do we approach, specifically with the topic of Revelation, there's so many assumptions on every topic and every nuance of it. And so I want to make sure that today, especially today, that as we read the passage, I want us to do something today to see what we can't learn. What if we divorced all of our assumptions about the passage and just let it say what it says? Could we learn something? Okay, so are you willing to do that with me today? Even if you're not, you're going to have to do that or you're going to walk out of here really mad. Uh, I am not trying to be all crazy, weird, new doctrine kind of thing. But what I do want to do is I want to try something crazy and just let the Bible say what it says. It's revolutionary. It's a revolutionary idea. We're going to do it this morning. Let's see if what we can learn from this. So we're going to jump into Revelation chapter 21 and begin. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Okay, wait a minute. If you thought that Revelation 21 and 22 was about heaven, you are sorely mistaken because the action in Revelation 21 and 22 is not there. The action comes out of heaven here. Now, I got good news. I'm not trying to tell you where heaven's at. That's not the conversation we're going to have today. Because I know if you guys are like, no, you're trying to talk about him coming down here, and I read the book, and it's about a heresy. And about it's not even where we're going to talk today. It's not even where we're going to talk. What I want to do is just let the Bible say what it says, and then we get to adapt to that. 
Because I think that's a really powerful thing when we let God's word be God's word and my life be God's life. Let him do with it what he wants to rather than me trying to twist it into what's always been comfortable for me. Listen, if you read the Bible correctly and just let the Bible say what it says, it's terribly inconvenient. (laughs) This isn't about your comfort. This is about bringing heaven crashing into earth. Why? Because that's John's intent in the letter and it's God's intent in the narrative. So I want to get this in mind. The new Jerusalem comes out of heaven down, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, because that's how I always start a conversation when I'm like with my wife. Hey, Kelly, behold. The dwelling place of God is with man. So where's God at? Here. Like this matters because the action isn't there. The action is here. And this seems like, why are you splitting this hair? I think by the end of the service, you'll find out that we're not splitting hairs. We're radically changing courses. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. Where? Here. It's where the action is. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne says, Behold, I'm making all things new. Where? He also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, which is the second death. Now, I want to talk about this for a minute because this is really, really significant. What happens for us in our Christian life is that we kind of like say yes to Jesus for whatever reason. We say yes to Jesus and then we kind of hold on by a spiritual piece of dental floss until we just got to grit it, teeth and bear it until some glad morning when this life is o'er. Which, why can't you just say over? Say what you mean. Don't make up words. Like, when this life is or some, I'll fly away. Because the action is there. And that's where I want to get to. It's there. I want to get out of here to there. And this, this is all just a mess. And this, what a painful, wretched place this is. I want to go there. Because the action's there. The problem is in the end, I think God may be coming down and we may be going up and passing. Like, wait a minute, where'd God go? Like God, because apparently according to Revelation, the action 
is here. Like we're not talking about heaven. We're not talking about the end of things. I'm talking about when things get restored, all of this pain, all of this suffering that these people have endured, all of this persecution, in the end, the resolution of all of that isn't there. It's here. That's what the text says. And so what happens is we develop this culture of people who think about there and people who don't think about there. And the people who think about there obviously are more important than the people who don't think about there. And so those of us that aren't like in the ministry, we, we just make money at jobs and we give money to the church so that they can focus on where the action is because the action's there. And, and it's always fascinating to me because I'm, I'm like, so okay, so what you're telling me is you go to a job where you're surrounded by people who are living in a chained, stuck, broken existence who are desperately in need of the loving grace of an incredible God. You're surrounded by those people every day. And the action is somewhere else? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> like, I, I don't, I, I wish. I'm surrounded by church people all the time. Like that's, ma'am, I'll swap you. Um, like, here's what we have to remember. The action, but if we believe that the action is there, that it's somewhere else, then we try to live our lives with a sort of a mentality of a disembodied evacuation. Like the goal is to get off this rock. And so if that's true, why would we steward it? Like, who cares about it? It's all going to burn up anyway, right? Like, who cares, who cares about this thing we call earth? Why, why not dump harsh chemicals into the rivers? Why not cut down all the trees? Why not, why not do all the things to destroy this and use it up and, and ruin it? Why not? Because some glad morning, I'll fly away, and this is all going to burn. But the problem is that between now and whenever the end is, God's invitation to us is not to live that way. God's invitation to us is to steward this place in a way that invites heaven to earth more and more and more. That's always been, and, and so we have to wrestle with ourselves as we read the Bible, we have to wrestle with this question, like where is this all going? When we think about like, what, what, is it all going to be worse and worse and worse? Is it just getting painfully worse until it's so morally bankrupt that God has to show up or we're all just, it's just going to be a big mess? Is that where we're headed? Or does the arc of the Bible bend us back towards justice and mercy and compassion and healing and freedom? That's the story of the scripture, and you're like, but I haven't experienced that in my life. I know. That means we still got work to do. But the thing that gives us the weight to endure and the thing that gives our God's reputation power in our world is the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. 
These are the same things that the book of Revelation has been calling us back to. What gives you weight in this world in your living? What gives you substance in how you walk out your life? Is the testimony that we refuse to believe that this world is only evil, but that we partner with God to redeem the good. And this matters. And by the way, it's not a new concept. John isn't making this stuff up. This is the stuff of the prophets of the Old Testament, right? Like we've been doing this all the way through the book of Revelation, but the reality is John is pulling his material straight out of the Old Testament from people who've been sitting in the exact same position before where there's been persecution and fear and pain and man, is this, is this the end? Is this, is this all there is? We're all falling apart here. And John's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've been here before. We've been here before. Check out Isaiah 65. This is really interesting to me. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. John is so original in his stuff, right? That was sarcasm. I don't know. Um, I want to make sure, because sometimes sarcasm is a hard sense of humor. And I have the spiritual gift of sarcasm. So you kind of, you have to forgive me for that. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Now you could say Jerusalem is going to be a metaphor for heaven if you want to do that with this passage. So there's a new heaven and a new earth. But I want you to see what's actually happening in and around Jerusalem in this passage in Isaiah 65. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner of a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. Do we build our houses in heaven? Well, Jesus says something about the Father preparing our place there, right? They plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Do we garden in heaven, or does God provide? Do you see, like this is all participatory, this worldly. It's, it's engaged here with things that we do every day here. They shall not build another and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they, they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. Where? Where's the action? Here. Like the, I'm just saying, just let the text say what it says. Don't go, well, but that, but that, but that. No, just let it say what it says. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Now, this is how our story ends. And it's been the way that God's always desired to resolve the persecution of his people. That we would endure in such a way that we believe that we're still partnering with God to bring about the redemption of all things. 
that we would live our lives in such a way that God doesn't long to destroy this world, but that he longs to redeem it. And that matters because it changes everything about how we talk to people and how we talk about people. If we're right fighting and truth banner waving, then it becomes about those people and their wretchedness and their wrong and their bad and their evil. But for us, that is not the call of God. God's people are called to partner with him to restore what sin broke. And that, in the end, brings us all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning... Literally in the Hebrew, in a beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Up until this point in history, this maybe was the most revolutionary statement ever written down. And the reason is because all other cultures had creation accounts of how the gods birthed the world, but all of them somehow were rooted in conflict, that the gods were in conflict with one another. Now, the hows on that change... They, they, they're different from culture to culture, but the gods are in conflict, and out of that conflict, the earth is born. Our task then, as people who live on this earth, is to keep the gods' anger at bay. And we live making sacrifices, which go higher and higher and more and more and more and get all, all the way up to what's the most important thing I can give. My firstborn child? Of course. Of course this is what the gods would require because they're rooted in anger. This story says God's not angry. He's created. And the earth was absolutely and completely chaos, but then he began to speak. And it was good. And it was good. And it was good. And it was good. Like, we ought to pay attention to that. Because when an author repeats something, it's because they want us to know it. And then he gets all the way down to mankind and he creates man and he says, I think I can do one better. Can I get a witness from my sisters? And he creates women and he says, that is tov meod. That is very good. Man without woman is like, meh. Women on the planet made everything awesome. <laughs> I just want to be able to walk out of here with my scalp today. That's all. That's uh, all. It matters that we understand that our story begins there. Because what we do in our Christian culture is because we believe that the action is there, we begin our story with Genesis 3. And the problem is God doesn't begin your story there. God begins your story in Genesis 1 with a good world and a good creation, and he created you good and full of potential. If your good news is, hey, did you know you're an abomination? then I would hate to hear your bad news, right? Like that's not good news. But if our good news is God created the world good and he created you to function in it full of potential, sin gets in the way of that. It does. But the call of the scripture, the ark of the story that God tells isn't about your sin 
your sin doesn't drive the story of the Bible. God's relentless pursuit to, to redeem you and to show you how much he loves you. That's the story of the Bible. So we get to Jesus and we go, your sin, you are a horrible sinner. Did you know that Jesus had to die for you? Hope you feel bad. Hope you feel terrible about that. Jesus had to die for you because you're a big fat mess up. Right? Listen to me. Your sin, hear, hear me all the way through on this. Your sin did not put Jesus on the cross. If it was just about your sin, he would have killed you. Read Ananias and Sapphira. God has no problem killing people for sin. But your sin doesn't put Jesus on the cross. His love for you does. And that changes everything about everything. Because you're not the sum total of your mistakes. You are what God says you are. That's why in Romans 7, when, he's, when Paul is writing down, he's like, what I want to do, I don't do it. And what I don't want to do, that's what I do. What a wretched man I am. Who can save me from this body of death? Praise be to the Lord Jesus. And we stop there and we go, see, Paul's saying that I'm just a horrible sinner. Amen, brother, because I can't say yes to God for nothing, right? But we don't keep reading in Romans 7. We don't keep reading in Romans 7, and that's important. Because what he says is, so when I don't do the good that I ought, I see this law at work in me. Sin is right there with me trying to get me to do what I ought not to do. Here's what Paul says. This is brilliant. There's the me that God says I am, and then there's the me that sin says I am. And sin invites me to do that and get from sin what only God could give me. And ultimately, sin is always a letdown, right? We know that you can't go to the world for things that only God can give. You can't do that. God's invitation and Paul's invitation in Romans 7 is the way that you take hold of the truth of you is to walk with Christ. That's why Romans 8 opens with, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because that's the true you. That's the you that God made you to be. That's the you that from the beginning of the world, God intended for you to function as. That's the you that when you were conceived, God looked all over the whole world and he said, what does the world need? And then he went into your mom's womb and he made it. You, you are a gift that God gave the world. You're not a mistake. You're not a whoops. You're not insufficient. You're not pretty enough or good enough or rich enough or poor or whatever. You don't have enough. It's, you're not the sum total of your mistakes. You are what God says you are. And the action of you and I who call ourselves followers of Jesus is to call that truth out of this world here and now. Here's why this matters to me. One of the reasons why it matters to me is because I have a daughter who is Chinese. 
It's a weird thing. Um, they say that every fourth child born in the world is Chinese, and it's true in our home. Um, our fourth child is Chinese. I don't know what happened. Like, hey, look at us. We're by the numbers. No, actually, we were done bringing our genetic code into the world, and I still believe that we made a good choice there. We've hurt the world enough, but uh, we weren't done expanding our family, and so God gave us the opportunity to go through the process of adoption, and if that's something that's on anybody's heart, please come talk to me, because that is amazing. She was born, um, we don't even know for sure what day what she was born. We're guessing within a day or two, but we don't know for sure. Um, she was born with a physical defect called bilateral microtia. And what that means is she doesn't have ears. Uh, the skull grew over her ear hole. Now, the inner ear for her works. And if you know anything about microtia, there's varying degrees of it. Her inner ear works fine, but she doesn't have an ear hole. So she's about 80% deaf. Because of this defect, and she's a girl in a country that doesn't value that with a single child law, she was abandoned. That is the story that the world gave her. When you make decisions out of, I'm abandoned, I'm a defect, I'm a mistake, what kind of decisions do you think you make? See, here's the reason why I love the story of the scripture, and please hear me all the way through on this. Because when I go through the creation story with my daughter, I say, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he separated the light from the dark. And what did he say? And she says, it was good. And then on this day, he did this. And what did he say? It was good. It was good. I always give her that part. It was good. It was good. It was good. Like, yeah. And what did God say when he made man and woman? It was real good. That's what she says. I'm like, that's right. And what did he say when he made you? Perfect. That's her story. My daughter, who's, the world gave her a story that said you're a mistake, you're a defect, and you're not worth loving. And God, out of six billion people on the planet, said you're gonna know me. And plucked her out and said, you matter. That's a story I wanna be a part of. Not one that reminds me of my defects, but one that reminds me of a God who sees past those to the potential that he put in me at the creation of the world. And that's why it matters that the action is here because we can't live like the action is just about getting out of here. We have to live like the action is here. So the story that we tell with her is, she said, Dad, she said this to me one time, Dad, um, tell me the story of how I was adopted. That's what she said. Tell me the story of how I was adopted. She's 80% deaf. I said, okay, here's what happened. We were done having kids. And, my, you know, Kelly and I, my wife and I, thought that we, were, we didn't want to have any more kids. And so God looked at our family and he's like, you know what, you're not quite done. But not just any kid will do. You got to have the perfect kid. So he went to Canada and he looked all over Canada. And there were no good candidates in Canada. <laughs> not for our family, anyway which is a running joke in our family because one day my daughter Ellie asked me, 
um, Dad, where do weeds come from? And I said, I don't know, but no place good. And she went, Canada? Like, I was like, <laughs> I don't know where she comes up with this stuff, but I'm like, maybe uh, they're a socialist plot to take over the world. I don't, I don't know what the weeds are. <laughs> but I was like, no, no, he didn't find any good candidates. And so, so then he went all the way over the Atlantic Ocean and he went to England and he looked all over England, but they didn't find the perfect kid for our family. And so then he went and we'd pick, I picked three or four or five different countries until she's like, dad. And then he went to China, right? I'm like, yeah. And then he went to China and he found the perfect child for our family. Who was it? That was me, dad. So I'm like, that's right. You're the perfect kid for our family. That's the story we're called to tell in the world. It's not a story of reminding people of their defects, failures, and shortcomings. It's a story that invites people to take hold of their God-given potential here and now in this world. And that's a gospel I want to be a part of. I don't want to be a part of a gospel that reminds me of my mistakes. The truth is, you don't have to tell me how bad I've blown it. I already know. I want to be a part of a community of people that understand that our task is to partner with God to bring heaven crashing into earth today. And if God chooses in the end of things to burn it all up, that is his choice. But from now until then, we are here with the sole purpose of partnering with God to redeem and restore what's broken, not ruin it. That's our task. And that's why it's important to understand that the book of Revelation doesn't necessarily end with some glad morning when this life is o'er. It ends with God restoring things here and righting the wrongs here and helping people live in prosperity and peace and hope and freedom here. And that's our hope. That's what a relationship with Jesus is all about today. And so with that in mind, we're going to move towards the Lord's table. If you're new with us, we take communion every week and we have an open table. What that means is anybody who wants to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake. But we want you to hold those elements to the end and we will um, take them all together, okay? So while they're passing that out, I want to work through some implications. Now, implications for us, there's probably lots of places where you're like, well, that means this, or I could apply that here, or that, that helps this situation over here in my life, or whatever, and all those are valid and good, and you should hold on to those things. Please don't let me discredit what the Spirit's doing in your heart with the sermon. But these are things that we thought as we prepared this message would be particularly significant for you to catch, out of this passage, okay? So let's, let's read the first one. God is restoring creation. If God's agenda is to restore creation, then what's your job? Partner with him to restore it. Thank you. I can't grab one. Oh, slippery little guys. Don't worry, I only touched one. God's in the business of restoring creation. So should we be then. Now, let me preface this. I grew up in a small, 
logging and mining town in northwestern Montana. I am a huge advocate of cutting down trees and digging holes. Like, do it. Mine, log, do it. Do it. Why My house is built out of wood. I love that we have trees to build houses with, right? Especially right now with the snow outside. I love having a house. But never take something away from our world without putting something back in return. That's stewardship, right? That's, that's how stewardship functions, is that I manage properly the things that I'm in charge of, whether that's Stewardship of finances, stewardship of the environment, stewardship of my relationships, my family, my friends, stewardship of whatever. Don't take something out of it without putting something back. Because God's in the business of restoring things. Next implication. The arc of creation and the arc of history is bent towards justice and hope. And that matters because if we believe that things are bad and getting worse, then we start to live in this place of fear where we get all, we surround ourselves with all the naysayers and the fatalists, and we're like, oh my goodness, it's all coming to an end. You know, they're like, we're going to lose it all. We're losing. You never had it. It was never yours to lose. So, like, this is, this is how what happens when we start to forget that the arc of the narrative of God's story is bent towards justice and hope. Because empires try to build themselves on other principles, but they always collapse. They collapse because they're not built on sustainable principles. Empire never lasts. Only the, the, the principles that this world was designed to function on. That's the only thing that will sustain it. Next implication. We have to decide whether we're going to trust our perspectives, the perspectives of others, or the assertion of God. Do you choose to look at what you see and say that's all there is? Or do you choose a relentless hope, focus, and energy given to the fact that what God says is true and that the world is actually worth redeeming? and that people are worth loving, and that is hard, and they will hurt you, but that it's worth it in the end. One more implication. If we believe God is putting the world back together, we must live like it today. And that's terribly inconvenient. It's terribly inconvenient. It's way easier just to say, well, I believe the right things, therefore, some glad morning, I will check in at the Holy Heaven Hotel, right? Whatever that is. What I would suggest is I would invite you to consider the possibility that whatever you believe really doesn't mean a hill of beans difference unless it's actually used to partner with God in the redemption of all things. And if you look up that phrase in the Greek in the, in the New Testament, the redemption of all things, guess what all things translates as? All things. From broken hearts to broken environment to broken relationships. We're called to that today. But it's only going to happen when we understand what it means to lay our life down so that we can be a part of what God's up to. When we get off the throne of our heart and put God on it. That's why we take communion every week, because it's a reminder for us that Jesus 
modeled for us this picture of what it means to actually walk this out in our life. This reminds us that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant. My blood which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Lord, I just want to say um, thank you that you refuse to give up on loving this place. Thank you that you, <clears throat> you refuse to, to give up on loving us. Thank you, Lord, that your grace is more than enough. Thank you for being a good father. And thank you, Lord, that you've invited us to bring that message to a world that desperately needs to hear it. Give us the courage to live it out well in your name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.